Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Scottsdale Big Book Study, where we will study the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. My name is Maria F., and I'm a recovered compulsive overeater, and I'm from County Dublin in Ireland, and I'll be your host for today's study. Our co-hosts today are Sue L., Nancy J., and Audrey N. If you have any questions or any concerns during the meeting, you can contact either myself or any of the co-hosts, and you can do this by private message in the chat function. And please note that our speaker today, Harlan G. Harlan will be recorded for the duration of the study. However, the question and answer session which follows, that will not be recorded. And we'll post a link to the previous week's recordings in the chat function. And Nancy tells us that we're on week 92 today. We ask if you could please make, make sure to keep your microphone on mute at all times during today's study. And also, if you need to step away from the screen for any reason at all, if you're exercising or eating or you need to move around, please just disconnect your camera because it could be off-putting for the members. So now we will turn over to Harlan G. Good morning, Harlan. You're muted, Harlan. Good morning, Maria. And might I say, not only is it a wonderful morning, but having you back is just like an infusion of energy. When you were sick, I was miserable. We missed you tremendously. So I'm really, really glad that you're here this morning. Um, it is April the 2nd, 2022. I hope it's as absolutely stunning wherever you are as it is here in Arizona today, where it's gonna be about 86 degrees, not a cloud in the sky and the humidity is shoe size low. So we're here and it's just gorgeous. We are going to embark on the study of the second chapter ever written for this book. The book project really took off in 1937. And the very first chapter that was written, rewritten, rewritten again, and rewritten again was Bill's story. And Bill's story was really never meant to be the first chapter in the uh, Arabic numerals of the book. It was meant to head the story section in the back of the book. But a man by the name of Tom Uzzle was brought in before the book was printed and he moved Bill's story to chapter one or to chapter two actually, because the first chapter was gonna be the doctor's opinion, which it was in the first edition. And then they moved it. And the reason that the doctor's opinion was moved is because it is not written by an alcoholic. And the main body of the book of Alcoholics Anonymous is supposed to be for alcoholics by alcoholics. And so they move the doctor's opinion to the Roman numeral section of the book so that now the entire book is for alcoholics by alcoholics. But of course, the doctor's opinion is key to any understanding that we may have of the book. And without the doctor's opinion, there's really no way we can really gather the information that we need so that we can study the steps and know where we're going. And the doctor's opinion is integral to our understanding of any of this, that's for sure. But let's take a look today at the chapter, there is a solution. And before we get anywhere deep into the chapter, we're gonna look at the title of the chapter and the title of the chapter is rather amazing. 
there is a solution. Now you have to remember that here in 2022, we assume that there's an Alcoholics Anonymous. We assume that there's treatment centers. We assume that there are all sorts of uh, help available for us and that there's meetings and that there's etc. Well, when this book was written, there was nothing. And I know that can be very difficult to grasp, but the world was a very different place in the 1930s than it is today. And when this book was written, there was nothing in the way of a solution. There were snake oil salesmen, crooks, that would go from town to town and they would try to sell people who were related to alcoholics, either by blood or affection. They would try to sell them different products to sprinkle and to drink and to take and to bathe in that would cure alcoholism. And none of these things worked at all whatsoever. As a matter of fact, I'll tell you one of my favorite stories. We were talking about this this week on our meetings. In the 1880s in Pennsylvania, there was a Dr. Graham, G-R-A-H-A-M, Dr. Graham. And Dr. Graham believed that there were two scourges on society. One was alcoholism and the other one was masturbation. And so he believed that by infusing large amounts of B12 vitamin, he could rid society of these two scourges. And he developed his cracker, his Graham's cracker, to load B12 into this cracker. And if you ate the cracker, you wouldn't drink and you wouldn't do that other thing. So he believed that this was going to be some sort of cure. And through the centuries, there were other people who attempted other things. Even Bill and Bob, when they first got started, they believed, and remember, Bob was a physician. They believed that in order to help guys get sober, they would load them up with caro syrup. Caro syrup is loaded with sugar and sauerkraut and tomatoes. And this concoction of sauerkraut and tomato and, and uh, caro syrup was supposed to help the guys to not only get sober, but it was to help them heal from the ravages of their alcoholism. And I could just see Bill and Bob in Bob's kitchen on at 855 Ardmore Street in Akron, Ohio, and some poor old drunk would keel over. And I can hear Bill saying to Bob, Let's not do that again. That doesn't seem to be doing us any good. And so they gave that up. But the title of the chapter, There Is a Solution, emphasis on the is, is very, very promising because it offers everyone hope, not just in the here and now, but it offers generations and generations of alcoholics hope who have not been born yet. There is a solution. Now let's take a look at the title of this chapter and let's look at it from an entirely different angle by shifting the emphasis to there is a solution. There is a solution. See, I need things simple. My brain is about the size of a pea. It's about the size of a pea, and it's not even a big pea. It's a little tiny pea, and that's about the size of my noggin, my brain. 
and it doesn't absorb a lot of information, unfortunately. And so I need things kept very, very simple. And if you look at what happens sometimes in program, you have too much information coming down the pike. You've got, and I'm not knocking any literature, but you've got this book and you've got that book and you've got this calendar and this, this, this magazine, and you've got all kinds of things that are coming at the addicted person. So much so that sometimes as an addict, I don't know what to believe first. I don't know if it's this book I should follow or that book I should follow. And oftentimes they're not quite the same. They have very different things in them. There's all kinds of questions in this book. And boy, if I wasn't half crazy before I started those questions, I'd be certifiable for a laughing academy when I got halfway through all these questions, because I don't know what these questions have to do with my compulsive overeating most of the time. And then there's this book over here with all kinds of things. Boy, it can drive a person just crazy. So for me, and I'm not knocking any of this, if this is what's helping you, God bless you. For me, I need things kept simple as possible. There is a solution. And that means that for me, I follow the instructions in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, which is the textbook that I'm holding right here in my hand. And in it, I believe are all the instructions I will ever need. Now, if somebody needs other things or different things, God bless them. I am not criticizing. I have no opinion on these things. For me, I want it, need it, kept simple. There is a solution or there is a solution. Both are beautiful reassurances that I will have a place to go and I will have a method with which I can achieve a spiritual awakening, holding God's hand and in the achievement of a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps, I will never have to compulsively overeat ever again. And that's a beautiful promise for a boy like me. Now let's take a look at page 17. And let's take a look at the second chapter ever written for this book. This is a chapter that was written as 1937 was coming to a close. This is the autumn and winter of 37. And this is the chapter that was produced second after Bill's story. We of Alcoholics Anonymous know thousands of men and women who were once just as hopeless as Bill. Now let's stop right there. The first word of the first step gives me a promise. And the first word of this chapter gives me a promise. And what is that promise? We. You see, all my life, all my life, I felt that the way I thought about food, the way I reacted to food, the way I ate food was secret unto me and that there was something profoundly wrong with me and that there was something not only wrong with me, but when I would say the word wrong, I would equate it with the word bad, unacceptable, dastardly, stupid, crazy. And there was something that I picked up from the time I was a little boy I picked up the fact that this was my fault, 
And that if I didn't eat so much, then John F. Kennedy would never have been killed. If I didn't eat so much, there would have been no Cuban Missile Crisis in 1963. If I didn't eat so much, then people wouldn't die and everybody would be happy. Now, why did I pick up on that? Because everybody told me something that was not true. What they told me was if I don't eat so much, I'm gonna feel better and that all my problems will go away. Now they were right, because when I didn't eat so much, I felt a lot better. I felt anger better. I felt fear better. I felt crushes on girls, jealousy. I felt like killing myself much, much better. I felt like killing you much, much better. So these things were true, but not in the way that they were intended. And there was also something that these people told me and everybody that was older than me said it, the parents of my friends, the rabbi at Hebrew school, the rabbi at my synagogue, my parents, any one of their friends told me the same thing. If you don't eat so much, your problems will go away. Everything will be okay. And when I went on diets from the time I was five and six years old, trying to control the amount of food I ate while I was still eating without any spiritual help at all whatsoever, just using the most useless tool at my disposal, my willpower, it seemed as if my problems actually got worse. And so what happened to me at a very early age is my desire to die overcame my desire to live, overstated my desire to live, because I didn't see that there was any purpose to life. I knew that I was going to be a fat kid. I knew I couldn't live with the food, and I knew I couldn't live without the food. And so I didn't dare dream dreams. I didn't dare aspire to anything. And I became a quitter. I didn't become a person that could stick to anything and achieve a goal until I was in my 40s and 50s because I didn't have a God in my life that I could really rely on. And I didn't have a book to tell me how to overcome obstacles that were certain to come my way, whether I was eating or not, whether I weighed more or less, that there were things that were gonna happen in my life and I did not understand that my weight does not govern the events of the world. Makes a person rather self-centered, don't you think? Because everybody's convincing me that if I weighed less, everything in the world would go according to plan. And that is simply not true. My weight does not affect what happens in any other arena at all whatsoever, as far as I can tell. So the word we is a comfort to me. The word we gives me a feeling of hope that I don't have to face this alone. First word of the first step, we admitted we were alcoholics and could not manage our own life. We of Alcoholics Anonymous know thousands of men and women who were once just as hopeless as Bill. And we're talking, of course, about Bill Wilson, because we've just read his story. Nearly all have recovered. They have solved the drink problem. Rarely have we seen a person fail who has thoroughly followed our path. Most of our number recovers when following this completely. Look at 
the forward to the second edition, if you want to go back with me, why don't you go back with me to page XX? And I'd like to point something out to you on page XX. I'll give you a second to get there. It's in the Roman numeral section in the forward to the second edition. I am in the very first paragraph shown on the page, and I am beginning with the sentence of alcoholics, okay? I am in that first top paragraph of alcoholics who came to AA and really tried. What does really trying mean? They followed the steps as outlined in the book. 50% got sober at once and remained that way. 25% sobered up after some relapses. And among the remainder, those who stayed on with AA showed improvement. You can go back to page 17 now. Those numbers are rather startling. That means that 75% of the people who came into AA early on and really tried recovered. Now, we can't talk about 75% recovery, nowhere close to it. We can't talk about 50% recovery. We can't talk about 5% recovery today. And what is the principal reasons? The principal reasons are, number one, many come in who are unwilling to do the work in front of them. And many come in and they absolutely will not give up their allergic foods. They will not give up the foods that they react allergically to, and they continue to flounder. Now, we can look at this and we can say, if I wanna be one of the many that recovers, I'm gonna have to do what these guys are doing and these gals are doing. I can't just float around and do it my way. I'm going to have to do things I may not wanna do or that may not make sense to me at some point or another. But what Clancy Immeslin left us as a as a inheritance, he said, recovery re recovery occurs when one al alcoholic talks to another alcoholic, subsiding his feelings of difference, so that the second suffering alcoholic will begin to take actions that he does not yet believe in. You are in that struggle bus and I was there for a long time. What I had to do is I had to quit putzing around, quit farting around, and I had to start taking actions that I did not yet believe in. And when I started taking those actions, willingness flooded over me. I was waiting for willingness. It never came. That train never stopped at my station. When I started taking action in the face of my unwillingness, I forced myself to take action after action after action after action. The willingness came upon me. And for me, that is exactly how it works. Let's continue. 
We are average Americans. If the book was ever rewritten, which I hope to God it never is, but if the book were ever rewritten, then I would hope to God that they would say, we are average citizens of the world. Because if you look at what's going on here this morning, we have Israelis, Irish, Swedes, Danes, Norwegians, we have Canadians, we have all manner of citizens throughout the world that we represent lots of different four corners of the world. We have Greece, thank you. We have Italy. I was just on the Italian meeting yesterday. So we have lots and lots of different countries, lots and lots of different places on earth that are represented here this morning. And I proudly fly the flag of the crown jewel of the Midwest behind me, the city of broad shoulders, hog butcher to the world, Chicago, Illinois. All right. We are average Americans. All sections of this country and many of its occupations are represented. And that is for sure. We represent all manner of humanity here. I just hope that at some point we will do a better job of reaching out to some of the minority communities. I hope that before God closes my eyes and I go to the big meeting in the sky, which will undoubtedly be right above 182 Clinton Street in Brooklyn, New York, and I will walk in and I hope that a tall, lanky fella smoking a cigarette named Bill W. will shake my hand and welcome me and say, welcome to the meeting, we've been expecting you. But before God closes my eyes, I hope that we as an organization will do a better job of reaching out to the African-American community, the Hispanic community, the Pacific Rim community, the gay community, the, the, the Hispanic community. We have failed these communities, dreadfully failed them. We, they are woefully unrepresented in our fellowship. And I hope that as God sees fit to help us, we will be guided by his divine direction so that we can be more diverse in our lifetime, because that will be something that will not only help those communities, it will help everyone. We will be better when we are different. We will be stronger when we are different. We will be more effective at helping people when we are different. Enough preaching for today. I won't preach anymore, but that's just my feeling. Okay as well as many political, economic, social, and religious backgrounds. We are people who normally would not mix. Now, that is the understatement of the year. When you really consider how diverse we are geographically, religiously, racially, whatever that may be for you, but we have something that binds us together. Let's find out what it is together but there exists among us a fellowship, a friendliness and an understanding, which is indescribably wonderful. We are like the passengers of a great liner, the moment after rescue from shipwreck, when camaraderie, joyousness and democracy pervade the vessel from steerage to captain's table. Unlike the feelings of the ship's passengers, however, our joy in escape from disaster does not subside as we go our individual ways. The feeling of having shared in a common peril is one element in the powerful cement which binds us, but that in itself would never have joined us together as we are now joined. 
Now, I want to tell you that I have been very, very blessed. I have been blessed in my life. I do not have relatives. I don't have uh, brothers or sisters. I don't have parents. I, my mother died in 1976. My father died in 1978. And I have been alone uh, since that time as far as that goes. I was married for 17 and a half years. I did have a family. I do have a daughter who lives in Brooklyn, New York. Unfortunately, we don't have a relationship. I have done everything I could to move heaven and earth to, to get her to talk to me and be my daughter again. I, I don't think she knows herself what the issue is. I certainly have no clue. I don't have a wife, et cetera, et cetera. But what I have are very, very dear friends. And I have friends and my high school, my 50th high school reunion is coming up in October. I'm going to be in Chicago for the 50th reunion of the Mather High School class of 1972. And I can hardly wait to get there. It's just going to be so exciting. Uh, I wish I had a date for this, but I don't. But that's okay. That'll be all right. It'll be what it'll be. But I can't wait to see everybody and, and to hug everybody and, and have a really good time. Well, where I'm going with this is here. I know everything about these guys. I know their parents. I know their grandparents. I was at the funerals. I was at the bar mitzvahs, the weddings, the funeral. I was at everything, the christenings. I was at the church and the synagogue. They know everything about me. and I know everything about them. But you, maybe one of you or 10 of you or a thousand of you who I've never met before, know me better than they do. You know right where I live. You know exactly what makes me tick. I can trust you at a level with my feelings, with my words that I cannot trust anyone else with. I can share things with you and you can share them with me at a level that is unparalleled in normal friendship. I would never think to say to one of my high school friends, you know, I'm really scared about the reunion. I'm scared to go by myself. I'm scared that Mother's Day is coming and I can't celebrate Mother's Day. I'm scared that my birthday is coming up in May and I, I don't have anybody in my life, but I can tell those things to you. I'm scared about something, or I'm angry about something, or I'm upset about something. I can share those things with you and you with me. And what I have and what you have is a place to go where the language of the heart is spoken and understood. That is such a gift for anyone. I know people that have been married for years that have told me they love their spouse, they love the person. They think the world of the person. They just wish they could communicate with that spouse, that brother, that sister, that parent, that child on the level that they can communicate the things that we can say to each other with no fear of, of being abused for it or hurt by it. You see, all my life, when I dared to share my feelings with anybody, I was rebuked for that. I was told how stupid I was. I was told how wrong I was. I was told how weak I was. I was told how sniveling, where is my willpower? 
Where is my character? Where is my backbone? And I didn't know where to go with it. So I learned to keep things inside of me. I learned that there was no safety in the world, not even with a physician, not even with a rabbi, not even with an adult, not even with a teacher or a counselor in school. So you learn that these people do not understand me any better than they know why a caterpillar turns into a butterfly. They may know that it happens, but they couldn't give you the whys and the wherefores. I don't have to explain to you that when I get up in the morning, I have some fear. When I get up in the morning, I have some doubt. And I have to work my way into a place of faith. I have to work my way into a place of willingness. I have to work my way into a place of recovery, not just once in a while, but every single day, this work has to be done. I have a friend in Colorado. She says, you wash, rinse, and repeat every single day. I cannot be clean on yesterday's shower. To have that place to go is a gift that I could never repay God. I have a place where I can understand and be understood. Let's move forward, but this is a lot to have. And this is something that most people do not have. Whether you're anorexic and, or bulimic, you're a restrictor or you're, you're a compulsive overeater to the other side like me, there are people here of the 131, that means 130 people are here besides you. There are people here who not only understand, but they will love you in your doubt. They will comfort you in your pain. They will aid and abet you in your, in your striving for recovery. And that is not something that most people have. Let's not ever lose sight of how lucky we are. And I know that there are people who discount the value of the fellowship. And yes, it's true. I cannot get sober. I cannot get recovered on fellowship alone. But I want you to know that without the fellowship, I don't know how I would have made it. I don't know how I will continue to make it either. Wherever I go in this country or wherever I go in the world, be it Jerusalem, Israel, be it uh, Stockholm, Sweden, be it New York City, Los Angeles, San Diego, what have you, it doesn't matter where I go, Anchorage, Alaska, we have friends. There are networks of people who will come out of the woodwork to do whatever they can do to help you. What a gift from the ashes, from the filth of this disease comes this beautiful fellowship. And without it, I don't know where I'd be today, but I dearly, dearly, dearly do not wanna see a picture of where I'd be today. Let's continue. We're on page 17. We're at the bottom of the page, last paragraph. The tremendous fact for every one of us is that we have discovered a common solution. So not only can we share on the common problem, we also have a common solution. And that is the steps. That is the book. 
That is the instructions in here. We need each other. And we have that camaraderie of the, sh of the shipwrecked passengers. And I think back on the Titanic, when democracy pervaded from steerage to captain's table, as Joe and Charlie like to say, the steerage part is the cheese sandwich section of the, of the boat. Not very good uh, accommodations, not very good food. And if you've got the money, you can go up a few decks and you can go maybe to third class or second class or first class. And if you're very, very lucky and you're the right race, the right religion, the right money, old, old money, you can sit at the captain's table and the captain's table is the finest of everything, the finest dining, the finest silverware. But when they hit that iceberg and their tuchuses hit that water that night, the guy in the brogans wasn't swimming next to the guy in a tuxedo and the guy in the tuxedo, I mean, they were swimming together, but the guy in the tuxedo wasn't asking him for a financial for a financial statement. He was asking him, hey, what do you think? How the hell are we gonna save ourselves? And that was the only thing that they concerned themselves with. And when they got on the Carpathia, the ones that lasted and they got to New York, they had something in common that nobody could share with them. They were the only ones that knew what it was like to be on the Titanic and to get saved from the Titanic. But after a while, and after they had told the same stories over and over again, they went their separate ways, never to meet again. In our case, we have war stories, we have all kinds of things, and we keep getting new ones every single day. We keep running into the same patterns of feelings, but new events in our lives draw us closer to each other than we've ever been before. And the richer and deeper you have these relationships in program, the deeper, dip, the deeper and richer will be your recovery. Now, fellowship alone, you cannot recover on that, but it is an adjunct. It is an, it is an addition to the spiritual growth that you, will in, that you will enjoy, but it is one of the most beautiful things in the world to see. And I don't know anything that is more beautiful for any of us to see who have been around for a while, to see some of you come in disheveled, uh, hurting, terribly, terribly uh, afflicted by this disease, uh, some of you don't have your health. Some of you are nearly starving to death on the bulimic side, on the anorexic side. Some of you are at weights that are very dangerous and some are weights dangerous on the other side of the coin, you know, three, four, 500 pounds, whatever that might be. And the pain that you see on this person's face is palpable. And to see that person grow and to see that person recover and start helping someone else, and that person helps someone else, and that person starts helping someone else. It is one of the most joyful things in the world. I liken it to the farmer who plants his crops every year and who revels in the beauty of the harvest. It is one of the most beautiful things to see every single day of my life when I watch people suffering, and this disease is unbelievably debilitating. 
It is unbelievably painful. It is unbelievably horrific. What a nightmare this disease is. And on the other side of the coin is this beautiful camaraderie. Please promise me, promise yourself, forget about me, promise yourself that when the OA birthday next comes to live people in Los Angeles, Martin Luther King Jr.'s birthday weekend in Los Angeles in January. Why is the OA birthday in January? Because January the 19th was the very first meeting of Overeaters Anonymous, and it took place in Los Angeles, California. Now, this is just a personal aside. I want you to be there in the lobby of the Hilton to watch Charles. And I don't like to mention names, but I'm going to mention his name because I know he won't be upset. To watch Charles holding court in the lobby of the Hilton is a sight you should not miss. And then I went up to the second floor this was Saturday. Friday, he was holding court. And then Saturday, he's got them all lined up on the second floor, right behind the registration desk is a place where you, you could not behind it, in front of it, excuse me, in front of it. There's tables and chairs and you can sit and schmooze and whatever you want to do. He's got two, three people and their eyes are as big as dinner plates. And he's telling them what they've got to do. You cannot miss this. Charles is definitely part of the show when you come to Los Angeles. Maybe by then, uh, you know, <laughs> maybe by then you'll, you'll let go of any reservation you have about coming. It's a safe environment. Good gosh, if you can't be safe with the people in OA, who are you going to be safe with? Because it's a beautiful environment. But seriously, the birthday is great because they take such care at making sure that the people that are speaking up there have something to say. And it is a beautiful, beautiful convention. Another convention, and Charles will be holding court there too. This will be in Newark, New Jersey, and he will be holding court. But this will be at the Radisson when they get it going again in Newark, New Jersey. Um, and what will happen there is the Vision for You convention that usually takes place in November, hopefully. Now, in the questions and answer period today, I have no information at all whatsoever that these conventions are going back live. I do not. I'm just hoping, I'm praying that they do because we will have a great time. We will just love on one another. Many of you are going to go to Stepping Stones and see where Bill and Lois lived, which is not too far from the Newark, New Jersey location. And some of us are going to go to uh, William Street, 17 William Street in Newark, where most of the big book was typed by Ruth Hock and dictated by Bill Wilson. That's right there in Newark, 17 Williams Street. Um, so there's a lot to be had. There's a lot to be enjoyed when these conventions come back up. Until then, if they're on Zoom, please attend via Zoom because it's as close as we can possibly get to a live convention. So I hope that these conventions will come back soon. 
I don't know if Charles is here or not. I, I don't have the time and I, I can't think about what I need to say. But if he's here, I know he's doing a good job of just going with the flow. He is, he is the show. All right. We have a way out on, on which we can absolutely agree and upon which we can join in brotherly and harmonious action. Notice it doesn't say brotherly and harmonious prayer. Prayer's great. Prayer's fantastic. It doesn't say brotherly and harmonious thinking. It doesn't say brotherly and harmonious going to meetings and just sitting there. It says brotherly and harmonious what? Action. This is not a program for people who need it. It is not a program for people who want it. It is a program for people who do it. And constantly through this book, we are going to be reminded that this is a program of action. Notice there's a chapter into action, but there is no chapter into thinking. This is the great news this book carries to those who suffer from alcoholism. So this is a, these are promises here. See, you don't have to wait till page 83 to get promises. No, 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 no. There are promises all the way through the book. There's prayers, promises, warnings, instructions. There are things all through this book that should give one a light heart about what we're doing because these are promises that are beautiful. Top of page 18. An illness of this sort, and we have come to believe in an illness, involves those about us in a way no other human sickness can. Let's stop right there. I'm, um, as I've mentioned, I'm getting closer to October. And in October is the 50th reunion of my high school. And there are some pictures that are floating around. God bless, God bless those people. Um, and one of the pictures that came through yesterday was my first grade class, 1960. And I looked at myself and I started to cry because part of me would say to that little boy, six years old, I'm gonna take you in the back and shoot you and spare you this pain. And part of me, the bigger part of me would say, Little Harlan, you're going to cry a lot of tears and you're going to be alone a lot and you're going to be in desperate straits, but you are suffering from an illness that you didn't cause, you can't control, and you can't cure. And there is a God, and one day when you need him most, he'll be there in a way that's visible to you. He'll always be there, but it may not be very visible to you, son. And one day, this fellowship of Overeaters Anonymous will show up. They will just show up. And they will give you aid and comfort. And they will help you get across your divorce, your breakups, your disappointments, your suicidal thoughts, your surgeries, your good times, your accomplishments. They will be there for you. They will be there with you and they will support you and hold you up. You are not alone. 
My mother and father never told me I had an illness. My doctor never told me I had an illness. My rabbi never told me I had an illness. My teachers never told me I had an illness. My counselors never told me I had an illness. They said, what is the matter with you? Don't you have any willpower for God's sakes? Pull yourself up by the bootstraps. I'm going to slap you the next time you eat a Rolo. I'm going to slap you the next time you eat a corn dog. I'm going to kick your ass the next time I see you eating French fries. That's not a warning. That's a promise, Harlan. The next time I see you eating French fries, I am going to kick your ass. That is what I was told. Not once. Not 20 times. Not 100 times. 10,000 times. So I got the impression that I'm a bad person. Weak, stupid, undisciplined, uncaring. I am none of those things. I'm a good person. I'm a strong person. But what did Dr. Silkworth tell Bill Wilson? He says, and I'm quoting here, where alcohol is concerned, the will is amazingly weakened, although it remains strong in other respects. I have a will that is amazingly weakened when it comes to food. That popcorn, that chocolate does something for me that it does not do for other people. It gives them a sense of ease and comfort, and it makes all these other problems go away as quickly as they came, but only for about nine seconds. And my brain will focus in on how good that feels. So that Dr. Silkworth, do I keep mentioning Dr. Silkworth? You bet that I do. Am I ever gonna stop mentioning Dr. Silkworth? No, I'm not. No, I'm not. Because without Dr. Silkworth, there is no program. I love Bill. Bill's the co-founder. I love Hank Parkhurst. I love Fitz Mayo. I love Dr. Bob. But boys and girls, if there was no Dr. Silkworth and there was no doctor's opinion, there is no program. So I have a will that is amazingly weakened and men and women drink essentially because they like the effect produced by alcohol. There is something about that chocolate turtle that just makes everything okay. And I will pursue that to the gates of insanity or death. But I am not a bad person. I am not weak. I am not stupid. I'm not as smart as some people. I'm smarter than some, not as smart as others. I'm no better than anybody else, better than some, not as good as others. But I have an illness of the mind and an illness of the body that makes it impossible for me to stay stopped or stop on my own accord. Don't threaten me with violence. Don't threaten me with 
ostracizing me and don't make fun of me and don't make me the butt of your jokes. Don't yell things at me from cars. Don't break up with me. Don't abandon me. Don't hurt me. Don't stab me with your, with your emotional weapons. I'm a good person. I have an illness. And I can't cure it on my own. Couldn't cure it when I was five. Can't cure it now. Never will be able to cure it. I am a sufferer of an illness that I did not ask for. And I am in no way culpable for this illness. I have an exculpatory relationship. I am harmless. I am held harmless. I do not have responsibility for this illness and neither do you. Let's continue. If a person has cancer, all are sorry for him and no one is angry or hurt, but not so with the alcoholic illness for with it, there goes annihilation of all things worthwhile in life. That's the understatement of the year. It engulfs all whose lives touch the sufferers. My mother went to God with tears in her eyes. Harlan, please find a way not to eat so much. My father went to God with tears in his eyes. My God, my son, my son means my son. My God, my son, please find a way to not eat so much. I'm translating for you from Yiddish. It brings misunderstanding, fierce resentment, financial insecurity, disgusted friends and employers, warped lives of blameless children, sad wives and parents. Anyone can increase the list. They say that the average alcoholic takes seven people with him to hell. I don't know about seven, but my mother and father were tortured by my illness from the time I was a little kid. My mother and father were tortured by this. They didn't know what to do. They had their own illness. My mother was mentally ill. My mother was either a three-year-old or a two-year-old a screaming, raving lunatic, or a pretty together person. My father was from another country, from another generation, from another time. He was 54 years old when I was born. He was not like a father to me. He was like an affectionate grandfather to me. He was my dad. But by the time I entered first grade, he was in his 60s. So I couldn't do the things with him that little boys are supposed to do with their fathers. All I did was watch television and eat large amounts of pistachio nuts, kosher salami, bagels, things like that. That was our activity that we did together. That was what we did. So if I would have had Rob and Laura Petrie for parents, would I be a compulsive overeater? Yes. If I would have had whomever for parents, would I be a compulsive overeater? Yes. Because this is not a project, this is not a product of nurture. This is a product of nature. This is a product of you're born with this. Heroin and cocaine and certain opiates 
you are uh, crystal meth for sure. You can develop an addiction through use. If I use cocaine enough, if I use heroin enough, I will become addicted to heroin or cocaine. Crystal meth can, can make you addicted from the first use. But if I use crystal meth, eventually I'm going to be physically and emotionally addicted to crystal meth. Food, I either have it or I don't. I have it. That means I'm going to have to work these steps and I'm going to have to do some things or I am never going to recover. And the things that I'm going to have to do, I'm going to have to work the steps like my hair is on fire. I'm going to have to sponsor people because it is only through sponsorship that I can achieve that modicum of immunity from Nothing ensures immunity from drinking like intensive work with other alcoholics. When all other measures failed, work with another alcoholic would save the day. Our real purpose is to fit ourselves to be of maximum service to God and the people about us. When all other measures fail, work with another alcoholic will save the day. Are you getting the picture? that it is through intensive work with others that I can live in this immune state. Now, yes, every once in a while, I'm human. I will have a thought, wow, if I had a Lamborghini like that, my life would be just perfect. Women would be just running at me. If I had a Rolls Royce like that, man, I'd have a girlfriend. Or man, I want to eat that. Or I see or smell or something. It happens. I'm not responsible for my first thought. I'm responsible for my first action. I'm responsible for my second thought. And just because I see a commercial on TV and it looks pretty good, doesn't mean I have to go out and get one. I have steps. I have a fellowship. I have a God squad. The steps are what I lean into. The fellowship is what helps me to lean into the steps. The fellowship gives me identification and comfort. Let's move on. I'm on the second paragraph on page 18. We hope this volume will inform and comfort those who are or who may be affected. It will inform and comfort those. How many books can you pick up in your life that will not only inform you, but they will comfort you? Inform and comfort. It doesn't say inform or comfort. It says inform and comfort you. Those who are or who may be affected, there are many. And this program, this book, this informs and comforts. Do I have to have a full understanding of the forensic analysis of why I'm a compulsive overeater? No. Do I have to have a forensic analysis and a full understanding of God? No. Because if God were small enough for me to understand, he wouldn't be big enough to solve my problem. Do I have to have a full understanding of why we do this and why this works and why this doesn't? No. I just have to follow the ass in front of me. 
We're on a trail. We're going toward recovery. My One of my sponsors, he's dead now. He said, follow the ass in front of you. He's blazing a trail for you. Follow the ass in front of you. That's all you need to do. It's that simple. Follow the tuchus in front of you. Do the next right thing. That's all we're asking you to do. Let's continue. Highly competent psychiatrists who have dealt with us found, have found it's sometimes impossible to persuade an alcoholic to discuss his situation without reserve. Why would we discuss things without reserve when we have been convinced beyond reason that there is no understanding of what's really going on with me? Why would I tell a therapist, a psychiatrist, a doctor, all the doctors did was scream at me from the time I was a child. When I was nine years old, the doctor, Morad Jacobson, started screaming at my mother and my mother started screaming at him. And the next thing I knew, I was on heavy duty amphetamines. I mean, heavy duty diet pills. I was nine years old. You know what I would like to say today? How dare you? How dare you? I was nine years old. My God, what the hell were you thinking? Nine years old, and I'm on speed that could stun a freaking horse. 10 years old, I was on speed. What were you thinking? Don't you dare do that to me. If my little 10-year-old could go back in time, I would say, no, don't you dare do that. You tell me I have an illness and you find me a big book and you find me some people that can help me, but don't you put me on that damn stuff. You sleep about 15 minutes a month. You crawl the walls when that, when those pills would wear off, I would get scared and I would get all nervous and shaky. And don't you dare do that to me. If I could go back in time, I would say to that doctor and say to my mom, no, no, don't keep making me take that stuff. It's messing with my brain. It's a miracle I didn't end up as a speed freak or something because man, that stuff really, really hammers you home. All right, strangely enough, wives, parents, and intimate friends usually find us even more unapproachable than do the psychiatrist and the doctor. Very, very important. Now, we're going to stop today, but before I turn it back over to Maria or Sue or Nancy, I don't know who, I'm going to write down page 18, but the X. Okay. Now, before we turn it over, we're going to make a few things known. First of all, Charles, if, I, if you're here and I embarrassed you, I'm sorry. You know I love you, number one. Number two, if you are asking a question, please, 